Amen. Amen. And if you would remain standing as we read our sermon text for today, coming to us from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Join me in prayer. Father, we come before you right now as people who are in desperate need of a word from you, even though, Father, a good many of us might not realize our desperation. But, Father, you have in your kindness allowed us the rhythm of life that draws us from uh, the routine of, of six days and causes us to still ourselves in worship and in the Word as the church gathers in your name on Sundays. And so, Father, we pray now that as we have obediently done so, that you will visit us in your kindness to give us the Word we desperately need. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You be seated. Have you ever made something uh, far more difficult than it needed to be because, quite simply, you were just overthinking it? I'm going to have to admit to you that I am the king of doing that. It shows up most often when I cook, and, and I love to cook. So the kids will be coming to visit, and Julie will ask a simple question. What do you want to make when they are here? But I quickly turn that into an invitation to compete on Top Chef. And, and I, I suddenly have her making a grocery list for some unnecessarily complicated meal or her real favorite to get items at the grocery store for a, a meal idea I saw on Instagram that I've never before attempted or even eaten. She loves that. Julie just wants a simple meal for our kids, and suddenly I'm auditioning for the Food Network. We sometimes make things more difficult than they need to be because we overthink it. That may be true of Jesus' followers reading Scripture than just about anything else in our lives. Think with me for a moment about how we read the book of, of Revelation, already one of the most complicated books 
in the Bible. We'll take out our charts and internet links and books of bad fiction, and we'll start piling onto this book hackneyed theories and uninformed speculation, and in doing so, miss the entire point of the book, which is simply this. Life is going to get increasingly difficult and even dangerous for followers of Jesus, but fear not, the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's the point of the book. We sometimes make the Bible more difficult, more complicated than it is meant to be because we overthink it. Take with uh, me, for instance, the passage that we just read about a missing Jesus. We'll go down these rabbit trails about how his parents could possibly lose him for three days. We'll get there. Or why, if Jesus is God, he needs to learn from the teachers in the temple. We'll get there. Or, or why, given what his parents knew about Jesus, they are puzzled by what he says in response to their question that every parent here understands, where in the world have you been? And again, we're going to get there. And we'll do all of that as we read, and we'll never get around to asking ourselves why Luke includes this event in his account of Christ's life in the first place, which is the point that we are meant to take from them, and obviously, we will get there. So, let's get started, and let's just walk through these verses together and revisit our, our first two verses as we, as we begin. Verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon them. Now, one rabbit trail that you might run down here, especially since we've just come out of the Advent season, is why Luke doesn't include Matthew's record of the Holy Family fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous rage. But I want you to remember what I said when I introduced Luke several weeks ago, uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving. The books about Jesus' life, which we call Gospels, that open the New Testament aren't biographies in the, the modern sense of that word. They, they, they aren't meant to be taken as a moment-by-moment -moment retelling of Jesus' life. Each of those books has an agenda, and they arrange and use and even discard the details of Christ's life to meet that agenda. Matthew's agenda was to, to show a Jewish audience how Jesus was their Messiah, and so pointing to his exodus from Egypt was a kind of way to help them identify with him. Luke is writing a gospel to a Gentile audience, so the escape to Egypt and the visit of the wise men that precipitated it to confirm Christ's solidarity with the Jewish people just wasn't germane to his point. He, he didn't need it to prove his point. His purpose, remember this, was to help his readers have confidence in all that they had heard about Jesus. So he skips over wise men and Egypt, and he focuses on the fact that the boy Jesus 
had the favor of God on him as he grew, something he then expands upon by retelling the time Jesus went missing at age 12, and doing so helps him achieve the point he is making in his book, which again, we will get to. But before we do, it's those questions again. I mean, we have so many questions. So in order for us to get those out of the way and focus on really why this is here, let's deal with some of these questions. First, how could Jesus's parents possibly lose him for three days? Well, they really lost him for one. You think, oh, that's way better, right? No, they really lost him for one. They, they uh, were, were leaving Jerusalem, and then they were coming back to Jerusalem and then they spent the day, uh, the third day, trying to find him. Here's what's important to understand. Luke brings us out. As devout and observant Jews, Joseph and Mary would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year for the seven-day Passover feast. And such a pilgrimage was not like hopping in the family van and going to visit grandma's. They would have packed the roads with thousands of other of their countrymen journeying into and out of Jerusalem, specifically traveling in what was likely a large contingent of family and neighbors. So it would have been easy for Mary and Joseph to assume that Jesus was with other family members and their children or their neighbors and not noticed that he was missing until they made their camp that first night. So they weren't being irresponsible parents. It's just that they did not have GPS trackers on their kids like you do. <laughs> That's simple enough. But we have other more weighty theological questions like why Jesus, if God needed to be taught by the teachers in the temple, and make no mistake about it, Jesus was being taught. Look at verse 46. And three days after, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus here is assuming the posture of a student at the time by sitting as the teachers taught. The teacher's method of, of of teaching content was to elicit questions from their pupils. So Jesus isn't quizzing his teachers. He's engaging in the process of learning. Luke does tell us that the nature of the questions he is asking and the answers that he is giving when asked a question is shocking, but he is learning. So again, if he is God... Why does he need to be taught? And that's, that's just not a question that, that Luke explores because he's making another point, which, again, we'll get to. But let's chase this down just a little bit because I think it's important. Luke was a companion of a man named Paul who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And, and Paul wrote these words about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He said that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's the key. He emptied himself. These words are, are simple in their construction, but they're, they're mind-blowing in their implication. 
They are telling us that when Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh, he voluntarily set aside the privileges of divinity. And one of those privileges was omniscience, the ability to know all things at all times. He remained God while he was on earth, and he could have chosen, because he remained God on earth, to take up his omniscience at any time, but again, he didn't. And the two clearest examples of him not taking up that omniscience while he's on earth are his declaration that only the Father knows the day and hour of his return, a statement that is recorded by both Matthew and Mark, and then our passage today, where Jesus is clearly learning. So what's going on? What a quote John Piper, evidently the incarnate Christ was able to somehow bracket or limit the actual exercise of his divine powers so that he had the personality of God, basically the motive and the will of God, but the powers of knowing all, the infinite strength of God, those he somehow restrained while he was on earth. And so Jesus here is not pretending to to learn. He was learning. In fact, Luke tells us that he actually increased in his learning. He increased in his wisdom. It's just that he had simply laid aside his omniscience for the sake of his mission in saving us by becoming one of us, people who need to learn. Now, I said there was another rabbit that we chase when these verses are read that can distract us from the main purpose. I'm going to save that for a bit because... It's important right now to just really get to the point that Luke is making here. And here is the point. Jesus understood his unique identity and relationship to the Father from a very early age. I'll say that again. Again, Jesus understood his unique identity and his relationship to the Father from a very early age. And we know that that is the main point, the reason that this passage exists, because for Luke's stated purpose in giving us an account of Christ's life. If you'll remember all the way back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says that he is writing to confirm in his readers the things that they had heard about Christ were true. And the followers of Jesus were claiming that he was divine. And critics of that claim would say, and continue to say, by the way, that he never claimed divinity for himself. It was only foisted on him by his followers years later, they say. So Luke here is making a point that not only did Jesus understand his unique identity as divine, he understood that from a very early age. That is why that this passage exists in our Bibles for us to read. Sometimes if-then statements, if-then statements, help clarify the real issue on a given subject. Let me give you a couple examples, one silly to get our brains working, and then a serious one. Here's the silly one. If Patrick Mahomes is your team's quarterback, Your team always has the chance to go to the Super Bowl. That if-then statement clarifies, how about those? There you go. All right. With that silliness out of the way, let's get more serious. If Jesus was God, 
then his teachings can't be ignored. He said, He is the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. If he was simply a good man, we could weigh his teaching about this ultimate reality against what other good men and women have taught throughout history about ultimate reality. But if he is God, then this statement that he was God and his opinion about ultimate reality is the only opinion that matters. That's why this passage matters. It's not about how to raise children or about to insight into the, the early life of Jesus. It's about the slow unveiling of his identity to the world around him. An unveiling that we see take place in, in three distinct ways or movements in our text. First, as we pay attention to it with that idea in mind, we see that his knowledge reveals his identity. His knowledge reveals his identity. Go back to verse 46 again. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke tells us that the preeminent teachers of Judaism were amazed by his understanding of God's Word and his answers, meaning that he was blowing them away with the questions, answers, and counter-questions that were a part of the learning process with his teachers. And Luke drops us a clue here to let us know exactly what it is that we are looking at. I want you to look at that word amazed in verse 47. If you're comfortable in doing so, I'd encourage you to underline it. Luke uses that word amazed 13 times in the book of Luke and in its companion book, part two, the book of Acts. And in each and every one of those times it is used, it describes a person's or a group of person's reaction to seeing the supernatural. Based on how Luke uses that word in the rest of his writing, he is telling us that Jesus is displaying not just a really shocking understanding, knowledge of God's Word. He is displaying not just a, 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 an unbelievable understanding of God's Word for a 12-year-old. He is displaying a knowledge of God's Word that can only be explained by the supernatural. Luke is saying here that Jesus wasn't just really smart. He's telling us God was present in the interaction with the teachers. His knowledge reveals his identity as God. Further, his understanding reveals his identity, and by that I mean his self-understanding. He understood who he was by age 12. And we see this in how he talked about God as his father. Now, there is obviously a sense we're calling God father isn't unique. All pious Jews would think of God as their father on some level. But I want you to pay close attention here. And if you do, you see that Jesus is making a claim about his relationship to God that is completely 
unique. Look back again at the question his parents asked in verse 46. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Your father and I is juxtaposed with the words, my father. Jesus is is claiming a relationship to God as his father right here that he is saying supersedes his relationship with his earthly father and his mother. And note that these words are the first words of Jesus that Luke records and are the earliest words of which we have a record of Jesus speaking. And in those words, Jesus is showing us that he was conscious as a 12-year-old child when most of us are trying to figure out whether or not we like broccoli. He was conscious as a child that he had a unique relationship with his father, referring to him as father in a way that shocked his parents and which would later have his adversaries claim was evidence of his blasphemy. In using the phrase as Jesus used it, he was claiming an equality with God. He had an awareness, an understanding at 12, that revealed his identity as God. And finally, I would say this. His story reveals his identity. Earlier I said there was one last rabbit trail that we like to chase when reading these verses, and I'd save them for later, and that time has come now. Why were Mary and Joseph so shocked at Jesus claiming such a unique relationship with God in a way that they likely understood and his, under, his adversaries would understand later as a claim to divinity. We've just come through the Advent season and all of the talk of angelic visitations to Mary and shepherds and the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. And Luke tells us that when these events took place, Mary treasured them in her heart. She, she took and, and meditated on what she had heard and seen concerning her son. And we're told that she continues to do so in our passage today. So why did she and her husband not understand what Jesus was saying when he made this claim? I guess we finally have our answer, don't we? Mary, did you know? No. We can finally put that song to rest. (laughs) We're not voting. But she didn't. She didn't know. Again, why? She didn't know for the same reason that his disciples after three years of having a front row seat to this life above all others, didn't know. They only had part of the story, didn't they? They lacked the key to unlocking Jesus' true identity, which isn't his words. It's his resurrection. 
His resurrection is the key. It wasn't until the resurrection that all that Mary had treasured in her heart concerning her son made any sense. It was only after the resurrection that she understood that the sleeping child she was holding was the great I am. And this shows us a fundamental truth about studying the life of Jesus. If you isolate Jesus from the resurrection, you will constantly be confounded, confused, and even put out by him. You'll think of him as a great teacher, but you will be puzzled by his teaching that he is the exclusive way to God. You'll think of him as a good man who modeled love, but you will be troubled when he divides all of human history between those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell on the basis of a person's relationship with him. You'll think of him as your spiritual life coach, optimizing your pursuit of the American dream, but you'll balk at the hard ethical demands that he makes of you, and you will sing songs of the holy infant tender and mild and be confounded by the bloodied man on the cross. But it goes deeper than that. Without the resurrection, you'll think him a fraud when your prayers for your loved one's healing go unanswered. You'll think him impotent when the trial feels impossible to bear. And you'll think of him as being outdated and even bigoted when culture bends away from him. But if there's a resurrection, then Jesus was who he claimed to be when he was 12 years old. Today, we've looked at the search for a missing Jesus when he was but a boy and learned through that event that Jesus understood his divinity from a very early age. But I'd like to take that and twist it just a minute and ask you this closing question. Are you missing Jesus? I'm not saying, have you misplaced him? I'm saying, are you missing the entire point of Jesus? If you are thinking of Jesus merely as that good man, good teacher, spiritual life coach, life optimizer, then you're missing him entirely. Those things may be somewhat downstream of who Jesus is, but they are not essential to who Jesus is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those things don't have to be true of Jesus for us to know Jesus. What has to be true of Jesus for us to know him is that we understand what he understood when he was 12, that he is God. And if he is God, then him saying to you who are gathered here today that he is the only way to God cannot be ignored. And if it is, it is into your eternal peril. If Jesus is 
God, then His is the only opinion that matters when it comes to how we operate our lives and and how we live our lives. If Jesus is God, then what we do here on a Sunday morning isn't a a cultural event that we do to, to make time before the football starts this afternoon. If Jesus is God, then it is literally the only thing that matters, and it supersedes elections, and it supersedes opinion, it supersedes all things. If Jesus is God, that's all we need to know. And if you don't know that, you're missing Jesus. So my prayer today on this first Sunday of a brand new year, when our campuses are filled with that new Bible smell and those gilded pages, they tear apart when we open our Bible for the first time. My prayer on this first Sunday of a brand new year is that you will embrace the whole story of Jesus and in doing so, find out what you have been missing. Let's pray together.